Hello, and welcome to Lauren.Live, the spirituality, health, and lifestyle podcast. Thanks for tuning in today. I want to send a quick reminder to subscribe to my YouTube channel. It always helps me to gain more visibility and get positive messaging out to as many people as possible. So I do thank you for doing that, liking the video, or sharing with someone if you enjoyed the content. Uh, you can head over to my Instagram page, at Live, and of course my website, lauren.live, for more podcasts and information about the content that I'm producing. Today's guest is very special and near and dear to my heart. This is actually my father, my dad, Mark Hale, and uh, thanks for being here, Dad. <laughs> my distinct pleasure to be here with you. Thank you. Um, so today we're going to be covering mental health, uh, clinical psychology, uh, psychotherapy, uh, counseling, however you want to call it. Uh, my dad has been in the field for about 42 years plus, and um, I'm going to let him introduce himself, but uh, he did graduate with a merit master's in social work, uh, clinical psychology uh, from Kansas University. That's where he got his master's, and he started out uh, with group health kind of in a more clinical setting, and then has paved his way into um, most of your career now has been in private practice. So we'll be talking a little bit about breaking out of the bounds uh, of just the by the book medical system, the mental health aspect side of that, and um, also kind of how you've brought spirituality into your practice and how you've evolved uh, personally, and then also how you've helped your patients evolve over the years. So we're going to touch on some of those aspects and other things that pop up will just kind of organically converse. But uh, I think more than ever with all the craziness going on in the world, uh, it's a balancing act. There's so much going on personally and as a collective. And so I thought this was a really important topic to cover. I'll get some tips from you, observations mm -hmm. from you, and uh, we'll just kind of see where this goes. But I think it's definitely mental health is has always been important, but it's seems even more critical now with, with all the, the interesting things going on in the world. So um, with that, let's first just start, I guess, tell people kind of how you got into the field, what attracted you to it, um, some of your, you know, your education, and then uh, just where you started it up until now with your practice. Yeah. Thank you. you know, initially started with um, an undergraduate degree in forensic studies. I had big aspirations of being a profiler in the FBI and got a degree in forensic studies from Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana, and took psychology courses and wanted to weave those two you know, disciplines or perfect, you know, professions together. And um, I had two mentors, two very astute professors who my senior year each individually took me aside and redirected me into the psychology track. Um, they both gave me good advice and knew me pretty well and didn't think I would fit in the paramilitary sort of milieu of the FBI. And they were right. Um, one of them said, you're gonna end up in Birmingham, Alabama, nothing against Bama, <laughs> in a basement uh, filing charts or doing accounting for the first five years. It's kind of like Mindhunter, that game, that if anyone's watched <laughs> it's, Mindhunter. It's, like, it's much like that, very much excellent production. So my senior year, I ended up taking about 12 psychology courses and um, ended up getting a double major. 
My first job actually was in um, inpatient psychiatry in a hospital in Indianapolis, a very um, strong classical medical model, um, mind-boggling experience with electroshock therapy and really severely disturbed mentally ill people and adolescents. And that piqued my interest in terms of staying in the profession uh, one of my best friends also worked with me, who became a, a colleague of mine, and he led the way. He picked the University of Kansas. They had a very strong clinical program, a community mental health program. And so my friend Dan Myers, who lives in New York and taught for years at the Albert Einstein School of Medicine, uh, went to KU, and I visited him and met some of the professors and faculty there, and then ended up getting a master's degree from the University of Kansas had a very good clinical internship both, both years there and worked in outpatient mental health centers. And my first professional job postgraduate was at the University of Washington, also in inpatient psychiatry, which was a fascinating experience. It was a postgraduate experience, um, extraordinaire with uh, affiliation with the university and all the teaching levels there. So two years there and then to group health outpatient with a, a wide range, general practice, group therapy, couples, family therapy, individual adults for about 10 years and then moved into private practice in Bellevue. And private practice, I've had a general practice, although I've um, kind of tipped in the direction of specialty in couples, marital, and family. And more recently, in the last several years, about half my practice are individual adults with a myriad of different presenting problems, anxiety, depression, phobias, uh, quite a bit of career issues, stress about career. Mm. More recently, I would say, uh, as Lauren well stated, uh, mental health and psychotherapy as a resource in our communities, uh, in light of this one-year-long pandemic, uh, I think colleagues would echo this. Uh, I don't think we've ever been busier. I think it is it's really been uh, an aftermath of the pandemic and families being cooped up, working from home, uh, kids doing school from home. Uh, anxiety disorders uh, have increased in adults, something like 37% new diagnosis over this last year. So it, it's really been a stressful period over these last several years for many people around the world and certainly in our community in the United States. So we're staying busy in the profession. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Okay, well, thanks for the intro, just a little background. And, uh, you know, I obviously know because you're my dad and we've had conversations, but, you know, you have, I think, uh, when I was younger, you know, there was this, like, uh, I don't know what the right word is, but, oh, like you're seeing a therapist and, you know, it used to maybe be embarrassing or it wasn't such a widely talked about topic. I think we've blown way past that many years ago but um i know many friends and family members that have gone to counseling and it just seems like it's more popular than ever and it's great that people feel comfortable doing that and um you know people my therapist it's like a thing now right but yeah. having a resource to talk to that's someone that's trained and not in your family doesn't have a bias I think it's really a great thing. And if you're watching this and you haven't gone to one, I highly recommend finding it. And it can take time to find the right fit. I know I went to someone years ago and I didn't 
quite feel like it was the right fit. But, um, uh, you know, before we dive into all this, if there is anyone watching that feels like they're struggling with something, uh, do you have any like words of wisdom to them? Just how to kind of get into finding someone or like, you know, just encouragement, I guess. I think in terms of finding a, a competent therapist, getting a referral from family members, not necessarily the exact same therapist that a brother or sister or a parent saw, but using family or friends as mm -hmm. a reference point, not only for an individual, but also the experience itself. I, I agree with you. I think over the last several years, um, going to therapy has been destigmatized mm -hmm. and uh, if anything, become somewhat fashionable or normal mm -hmm. for people. Um, it's, it's really, I think it's really been a positive shift in our culture mm -hmm. that you, you know, you would go see an ear, nose and throat person if you had problem. sinus yeah. problems or earache or something. And I think if you have psychological problems, anxiety, depression, fears, relationship struggles, um, going to see a, a qualified therapist. And again, I think a big part of that is also um, if you had couples or marital problem, you would want to seek out a skilled, trained, competent uh, marital therapist and try to do a good job of matching in that regard as well. Maybe find someone who has like a specialty. You're general, but like if someone deals, if you have something issue with like a, a child, it could be helpful to find maybe someone who specializes. Child psychologist. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Optimally. That's good advice. Um, okay, so one thing I, I've talked about on this podcast many times is uh, breaking out of the societal norm, if you will. Um, there's plenty of good aspects to the way that our society functions, the rules, the guidance, the education, but I also think a lot of people are waking up to the fact that um, you know, there's other things, whether it's natural medicine you know, for your body or for your mind. Um, there's different ways to approach things. Can you kind of speak to the beginning of your career and how it's shifted now? You were in a clinical setting. If you're local here in the Washington area, you're probably familiar with group health. Um, that was a hospital, and they had the mental health uh, department, and you were working under them, which did help you, you know, take your career uh, to yeah. the next level, but then you were looking for something with less structure and rules. You wanted to build your own practice, and you did move into your own private practice, and you've been doing that since. So can you kind of talk about how, mm -hmm. what you recognized, why you moved out of that setting, and what you like about the private practice sector? Yeah, I, I think that um, to succeed, to be skilled as a private practitioner, you need years of supervision and training and exposure to uh, you know, a range of other clinicians, um, again, optimally skilled, competent, you know, ed highly educated clinicians. And so I think institutional settings don't always provide that, but can provide that. And as I mentioned, like the University of Washington uh, had so many different visiting faculty, so many different levels of, of academic as well as clinical uh, training you know, for any of the staff that would work there. Uh, in, in mental health centers, oftentimes, uh, some of the constraints would be like numbers that you're required to see mm -hmm. X number of people per week or you can only practice certain types of psychotherapy. Mm -hmm. 
also many um, clinical settings may be operating on a, on a medical model with psychiatrists in charge, mm -hmm. and then there's a heavy infusion of psychotropic drugs, which can have their place, but I think are um, very much overprescribed in this country. Yeah. So one of the advantages of private practice for me has been uh, opportunity to pick and choose the modalities mm -hmm. that make sense to me, that feel like they're uh, dynamic and helpful to my clients. And so probably 10 or so, 11 years ago, I took a training on mindfulness, and that really was a turning point in my career, my style of practice where uh, it motivated me to study Buddhism, attend more trainings. And so I've woven mindfulness or many of the Buddhist uh, psychology and philosophy principles into my, my practice, whether it would be with individual adults, uh, couples, families. So. Consciousness, if you will. I mean, same thing, kind of mm -hmm. individual consciousness and then consciousness with whoever you, you're having an issue with, right? Kind of, we talk a lot about consciousness mm -hmm. on this podcast, same thing as mindfulness. Mm -hmm. Yes, I think of consciousness as um, multidimensional, a big part of it is self-awareness, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, st striving to be accountable and disciplined and wise mm -hmm. and thoughtful, empathetic, compassionate to others. Mm -hmm. um, I think that those are some core tenets that could help people experience better mental health, excuse me, and more fulfilling relationships for sure. Definitely. And for your own self, right? Self-improvement. <laughs> well, for the, yeah, the sanity of the therapist. I mean, I think that's been a fringe benefit of studying the Buddhism and uh, practicing meditation and mindfulness principles myself in my personal life uh, to help achieve the middle way, which mm -hmm. I think is a, a very uh, important Buddhist concept of being able to balance thoughts and emotions, uh, mm -hmm. our behavior, balance in a larger sense, mm -hmm. relationships with family, with friends, our career, our physical health. That, that's been an area of my practice too that um, has intrigued me and, and motivated me to learn more about medicine and uh, being able to contribute to our, our physical health via good mental health that our, our country has something in the neighborhood of 45% of, of all adults. This is mind-blowing to me. And I've seen, I've seen the number a couple of times now that are either hypertensive, obese, or diabetic, or, mm -hmm. or all three of the above, and or struggling with heart disease. So I, I think to be a skilled clinician, we have to also be aware and mindful of, of a, a mind-body connection. I am, definitely. It's all connected. Um, when you were talking about the mindfulness, the word intuition came up, which is something that if you're spiritual, you're pretty in tune with uh, our intuition, your pineal gland. That mm -hmm. is the center of so much, and a lot of people don't think about it uh, very often, but being conscious to your intuition, um, trying to figure out how to mm -hmm. ask this, but I guess... In yourself as the clinician, you know, the, you're treating people or helping people. 
Um, talk about intuition when you're meeting people and, and helping with, you know, whatever the issue might be, but also uh, maybe some advice uh, for people to trust their intuition. Have you had clients, you know, tell you like, oh, I kind of felt that, but I didn't listen to it, you know, over the years or I felt like I might do this, but then the ego got in the way. And, and then we have these continual fights, my husband and wife or my partner and I, and I guess I'm just speak to intuition, I guess, in your practice personally for you, but also as you've observed uh, hundreds and hundreds of, if not thousands of people in your career, um, do you feel that we should be trusting our intuition more? Because I think it's easy to let the ego step in and you push that away, whether it be health-related, financial, career, you know, relational. Uh, that's, that's a complex question. I know. It's a difficult yeah. question. Um, I think, you know, Intuition is certainly a skill that clinicians or therapists uh, could greatly benefit from in terms of working with clients and, and helping clients relieve their suffering. Mm -hmm. um, as far as clients are concerned, uh, I, I could give countless examples <laughs> of sort of uh, aberrations of, of intuition, like multiple marriages and things. And I think one of them would be like ambivalence related to intuition. I, I don't, I have serious ambivalence about marrying this person, but I, I don't extend our courtship or... They didn't listen to themselves though, right? Where they kind of knew. They, they, I went yeah. to the all, I've heard this a number of times in, in both my practice and in, in my private life from people that I went to the altar filled with ambivalence. Mm. And oftentimes those marriages don't last. They don't work out. Interesting. There was a, a great cartoon, one of the best psychotherapy cartoons. There's countless examples of it. It was in The New Yorker, and it was a, a couple having drinks. It was sort of a 50s kind of motif. But the, the wives were talking, and the wife said to her friend, um, I was filled with ambivalence, and Fred had numerous red flags, but I went ahead and married him anyway. Fred was across the room having a drink with a friend of his, and he had greedy, selfish, unaware, drinker, liar, <laughs> all over, all over his suit. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so she she might not have had intuition or followed her intuition. No? Right. So maybe that could be it. Because I was thinking of like what this is such a broad topic. You know, just to summarize, this what we're trying to do today. Give some tips to people. Would you say that is one is really in your personal life? It doesn't just have to be like within therapy or your problems, but just in life. Because I know that you have a spiritual side too. Like, mm -hmm. tap into that inner intuition and listen to yourself. I think you have to believe in yourself, and you have to have self-respect, self-esteem. Optimally, I think it helps to have had success with practicing intuition, and then being you know, reinforced via the intuitive process. Yeah, well, then that could start the cycle of it being more, you know, yes. exercise more. Yeah, mm -hmm. okay. Because I, I know personally, I feel a lot of people probably have had this experience, but in a relationship, relationship that was hard for me to get out of, but I knew it wasn't right, but I kept trying. And I think I've heard so many people say that, especially in relationships. It could be with a career or any, really anything. It could be a relationship with your friend or your mother, but like, 
typically a romantic relationship. I've tried so hard, but so many years, we have so many history, like there's so many justifications, right? But I guess like, what would you say to people that are struggling uh, in, in a partnership that have put in so much, but it seems like there's so much suffering. It's not, there's no growth. You know, it's one of those things where it's hard to just say like, you either get divorced or you don't. I know you don't, a good therapist doesn't necessarily tell that you're trying to have the person come to the awakening, right? You're just mm-hmm. guiding them. But for people that have said that or that are struggling in relationships, like what is your advice? I mean, how much do you try and how much do you, you know, your vow, your marriage vow before you give up? So like, I don't know if you could speak to that because I'm sure a lot of people specifically ask you that. Like, when do we keep, how long do we keep trying or when do we give up? Or I guess that's not the best way to say it, but you get my point. I think that's a struggle for a lot of people uh, when they've invested so much. So maybe answer that, but also uh, intertwine suffering because I know there's a lot of people that suffer, but they they, they want to stay in for, you know, there's millions of reasons why someone could stay in a relationship. And it doesn't just have to be a partnership. It could be any any relationship that has uh, stress. I think in terms of um, my own experience, I've had a number of clients over the years who come in with um, dreadful reports, a lot of suffering in their relationship with their partners, married or coupled. And... It, it's a, a high wire act, I think, oftentimes for the therapist that you want to advocate for the client to respect themselves and take better care of themselves and explore a range of considerations, perhaps points of considerations about their, their role in the relationship, what they've tried to resolve conflict or alleviate some of the suffering um, oftentimes partners resist or refuse to come in. You're right, it's not the therapist's job to, to recommend divorce or ending a relationship. Um, if you push too hard, I think it, you know, it takes the person's fear and jettisons them yeah. usually out of the therapy. It's, it's also challenging in our community with the, mul- the multicultural aspect yeah. of things. And so you have family norms and religion and sexism and so many different cultural aspects. Um, In in many cases, uh, divorce isn't even an option, even if Mm. there's domestic violence, you know, it's something. So patience and empathy and compassion with those folks Mm -hmm. goes a long way. I think the goal, again, is to help them foster more Mm self-respect and to believe in themselves that they're worthy Mm -hmm. of being treated respectfully, particularly if they espouse that with their partner. And and divorce is an option. I mean, it's certainly not a first option, but it it isn't a viable option after sustained efforts. I think one of the one of the recommendations I make in this is this applies generally to therapy. I think psychotherapy is about change. And that's why people want they want a change in their lives, a change from inside, a change in their relationship, a change in their careers, whatever it might be, change with their kids, if there's family therapy involved and concerns about kids. Mm-hmm. And so the more willing people are, I think, to take risks and push through fear and apprehension, mm-hmm. the more likely they will achieve their therapy goals. And so that dovetails, in my mind, back to if I'm in an abusive relationship, 
Um, I recommend that people try different approaches with their spouse, and then I think that uh, mirrors back volumes of information to them about what to expect. Mm. If you just keep keep getting rejected or abused or abandoned, um, like recognize that. <laughs> recognize after sometimes years of, of those dynamics in the relationship. Sure. Most likely, um, the atmospheric conditions aren't going to change. Sure. You know? So um, th this brings up, I think, a, an important part of psychotherapy and spirituality. I think that um, we all have our own fears, mm -hmm. and fears can be paralyzing in terms of steps toward change. And mm -hmm. I think it kind of boils down to either fear of abandonment or fear of annihilation, mm. one, one or both of those. Oh, that's a good point. I know there's so much to, to cover within this topic, so my mind's just trying to figure out, like, what, what do I ask next? Because we could talk about just that in one, ep you know, one episode. But the words that stick out, and I'm not a professional, but from my own experience, from listening to you, from my own mm -hmm. therapy work, uh, from my own spiritual work, uh, fear, insecurity, um, and ego seem to be some of potentially the top three triggering, you know, uh, aspects of our personalities that probably cause a lot of our own suffering and a lot of our own conflict. And some of it's detrimental. It could be very insecure, but you abuse others and then you manipulate and there's narcissism. There's all types of stuff, or you're doing it to yourself. Someone comes to you and they have eating disorders or there's fear. So they have to take control and they do it in a certain way. So wouldn't you say some of the top things to look at either within yourself or your partner, fear, um, insecurity, and, and ego, which could be narcissism or um, a bold personality that takes over? Mm -hmm. Are those some of the top three things that you think lead to a lot of uh, people's issues and suffering? I, I think that fear, in, in a general sense, is um, a prevailing kind of emotion that, that lends to anxiety and or depression. I, I think of anxiety and depression as more interrelated than a lot of clinicians do as two separate mm. you know, clinical entities. And I think sometimes anxiety could be uh, maybe an a activation deviation from being depressed. I can't get up off the couch. I'm so depressed. I can't get off the couch. I can't leave the house. And then I get anxious about that. And maybe I can get up off the couch, but then I'm afraid to go outside the house, and so I revert back into depression. Mm -hmm. um, I, th I think, again, the Buddhist philosophy, I, I think of Buddhism as a spirituality, a spiritual practice, a philosophy, a psychology, and a science. And, you know, it's, it's been around since the either 6th or 5th, there's a lot of controversy about mm -hmm. this, B.C., mm -hmm. And the, the Buddhist monks and the Buddhist scholars have been expanding on it. It's, it's definitely not a cult. They usually avoid trying to convert anyone. Mm -hmm. They just put it's a, out a, way a of positive, being. loving, compassionate message to help people deal with their fears, to help people alleviate their, mm -hmm. their personal, their relational suffering. And it, it just, there's so many principles and tenets to the Buddhist um, mentality, the Buddhist sure. discipline, which lends itself, I think, um, very powerfully, very beautifully, symmetric, 
to psychotherapy practice, yeah. you know, whether it's individuals, couples, uh, even young kids. Yeah, and you've studied it more than I have, but what I know and what I've kind of come to realize through you and, and some of the Buddhist techniques that I've read about and, and just spiritual practice in a nutshell really is, again, look within. Like, sure, there's exterior um, issues if you're in an abusive relationship and someone else is hurting you, whatever the way that they're doing that, but still it's your choice most of the time, unless you're trapped, but... It's your choice to stay. It's your choice to put up with it. It's your choice to, to leave. And so, um, or whatever the problem is that you're, you're experiencing, um, it, it's within. And we have what we need within to get out. Uh, but we create a lot of our own suffering. And I know you've always like vocalized that. And I always remember you saying that. Um, so I guess, what are some ways for people to practice releasing themselves from the suffering? Is it just as simple as meditating and self-talk and I mean what are some ways to break out of those I guess it's a way of thinking about things right I, I believe our thoughts generate our emotions yes. and we move in the direction of our thoughts mm -hmm. and so if I'm greedy or angry or jealous or insecure then I, I behave and relate mm -hmm. and, and view the world in those ways and I think our, our thoughts often create our suffering. Yeah. The iconic um, American author Mark Twain must have been an anxious man because he had some pearls of wisdom around anxiety and fear. One of them was 90% of the things I worried about never came true. Yeah. And so I, I think this awareness of this continuous thought stream that plays in our mind, this internal dialogue, mm -hmm. has so much to do with our mental health and how we feel about ourselves, how we relate to others, how we problem solve, how we, how we see and perceive the world. It's like the Mississippi River, it never runs dry. Mm. And so if we can learn to observe our mind, not judge our mind, our thoughts, but mm. observe our mind, sometimes get out of our mind mm -hmm. if we can, and that's the pathway to that might be meditation, mm -hmm. prayer, for some people, mm -hmm. uh, sports, you know, activities, mm -hmm. you know, pleasurable activities. Sure, being outside and gardening, doing something that's not mm -hmm. relaxing, or you find joy. Yes, yeah. yes. I think it. Th those examples are great examples of being in the moment. Mm -hmm. But I think we can learn uh, ways to achieve being in the moment via this awareness of our mind, of what, what's happening in our mind. And you can tap into that really anywhere at any time if you practice. It doesn't have to just be meditation or gardening or exercising. If you're in a stressful right. situation, you could literally become conscious and okay, this is happening, but yeah. right here, right now, I'm okay. And just pause. Yeah. Well, this, in my mind, is an example, and it's, it's extra special for me to, to experience this with you and whenever I'm around you. I, I feel joy and pride. Uh, but this moment is, is the most important moment in our, in our life. And, and then there's a, a moment ahead, and there's memory and moments that we move through. But if we can become more aware and more you know, immersed in the current moment, mm -hmm. and of course, someone might counter and say, well, what if my current moment is suffering, mm -hmm. depression, fear? Mm -hmm. That 
I think there are ways to move through that and learn learn ways to accept that it's inevitable that we will we will doubt ourselves or be fearful or anxious or disappointed. Um, I think one of the most important things we could teach our kids is how to cope and deal with disappointment and and move on. You know, move into the next moment. Sure. Yeah, that's good advice, and that's something that I've really changed my life. Uh, Eckhart Tolle, you know, you're a big fan too, but uh, The Power of Now, yeah. he's not the only one that speaks about this. Many, many people that are, you know, conscious or enlightened or that are practicing that type of life uh, talk about being in the moment because it is truly all that is guaranteed, and I know that helps me. I've had some anxieties and fears of the years, and you've given me advice, and I've read about it. I'll just use an example. Flying has always been something that's been a little nerve-wracking for me, especially when it's turbulent, and you would always just tell me, like, it's passing. So mm-hmm. you, yeah. even if you're suffering or you're upset or there's some issue happening right now, that's your reality right now, be in it, yes. sit in it. You don't have to fight it. It's okay that it's upsetting, but then it, it will pass. pass. So whether it it's a good moment or a bad moment, it will pass. So I think that's like always been very helpful for me. So I think if... If someone is struggling to remember, like, this moment will pass. But also I think there's an importance, whatever the emotion is, is to sit in the moment and experience it. Because there are a lot of people, too, that might fight the fear or fight the emotion. But don't you think there is a beauty to experiencing some of the lower, if you will, points, too? Well, and that's an interesting um, thought about the lower point. One of the appealing concepts to me in Buddhism is that all emotions are on That's a horizontal yeah. continuum, as opposed to a Western psychology of, of you know, joy and self-actualization and pride and civility and happiness are up here, and then envy and anger and hatred and race, racist thoughts and, are, are lower. And I think on this continuum, greed and Joy and pride and happiness are, are right there with sadness, depression, perhaps even suicidal thinking on, on this continuum. Mm. That, that to me is one of the tragedies of suicidal uh, attempts or completions is, is not recognizing that, that oftentimes just a day later the circumstances, it's, it's not always as simple as that. I mean, suicidal people sometime arrive at that place after years, sure. years of uninterrupted loneliness and depression and despair. Mm-hmm. And those, there are certain cases where people can benefit from psychotropic intervention. Sure, where they can't get out on their own, yeah. But thank you for acknowledging that because I actually do agree with that. But, you know, again, it's like, I don't want to say we've been trained, but in a way we have. You're sad or mad, you got to fix that problem and get out of it oh. and... But really, it's all just this constant, and there's highs mm-hmm. and lows throughout every day. That doesn't mean it's bad or good. It's just part of a human experience. And I did a podcast episode about incarnating and being here on Earth and having the ability and actually the joy of the experience of emotions because it is said that in other planes will we'll take the more happier one. There's, there's just an you know emotion of love. It's just a constant, but there's not the ability to uh, experience the same sorrows that we have. And often, I think we can all agree, you grow the most actually after mm-hmm. 
struggles and challenges. It doesn't even have to be a bad thing, but when you are challenged, you you change or you grow. And so some of that, some of these words that we're using, it's not bad or good, it's just part of life experience. But I do think most people can agree when you get out of that sad or tough moment, uh, you really do grow and continue to evolve. So there's beauty within that. Um, But finding silver linings and finding joy, uh, even in hard situations, I think that's maybe really when you've started to master some of your own personal work and consciousness. So I think it also helps to have a loving partner or family and friends, you know, to, to that kind of support to help deal with difficult times in our life. Yeah. You mentioned one of my favorite, uh, concepts or experiences, love. Hmm. And I think love is at the center of, um, a happier life, a more contented life. You and Michael are demonstrating that with Valentina, Lauren's daughter, who is just uh, an eternal fountain of love and joy. And I think if, uh, if I have a, a couple of probably most enjoyable areas in my practice, it's working with parents and, and school-aged kids and adolescents. And I think so much of of human development, healthy human development, and kind of an absence of mental illness or addictions is related to attachment theory Mm. um, of loving and nurturing, giving and receiving care and comfort to infant, two to three-year-old, five-year-old, up to adolescence, through adolescence. And I think most developmental psychologists would say that uh, so many of societal ills, crime, racism, uh, public health uh, epidemic, uh, have a lot to do with early childhood development and how kids were uh, raised or how kids were abused or Mm -hmm. abandoned, controlled by their parents. Yeah, and I mean that it sounds cliche, right? Everyone talks about that. Oh, like uh, I went to the family of origin and I found out why I am the way I am, or you know. But it uh, there's a lot of truth to that, and you know, even just in our you know relationship, I, I look and again, it's not bad or good. We naturally you're, you have some things that just come naturally when you're born. Mm-hmm. Uh, they say na- nature right. versus nurture, right? Uh, there's environmental factors. We're all human, so some of my qualities, bad or good, will pass on to Valentina, just like you and mom did a great job, I think, with me. But, you know, I have certain parts of my personality that I developed because of the way that you guys were. That's just natural. Sure. That's how it works. But, um, yes. yes, I think, you we, know. We were, pardon me, washing our hands <laughs> way, way before the pandemic. So I'm a slight germ-phobe. <laughs> thanks to, no. But I think people can either take... I mean, in a more severe case with abuse or manipulation, you either carry that on or if you're lucky enough to be conscious of it, you break that cycle, hopefully, before you have children. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I would say a lot of people's tendencies, challenges, or or strengths, they do. They come from your family of origin. And then it's up to you as an adult or young teen, you're starting to recognize things, to be conscious of 
whether you want to pass that on and continue that on or if you want to break the cycle, right? But inevitably think of how influenced you are by your circumstances of your childhood. So yes, for those that have a little bit of a happier childhood, I think Mm -hmm. things can sometimes be, I don't want to say easier, but uh, Mm -hmm. don't you think that's fair to say with uh, your clients over the years, a lot of family stuff ends up coming up in the sessions when they're struggling with things? Very much so. And uh, family of origin theory and therapy is a big part of my practice as well. Um, In my work with couples, so often couples who have long-term, seemingly unresolved, repetitive, hurtful patterns of, you know, either attack or avoidance and not speaking for days on end after a two-minute argument, um, often in exploring their families of origin, a part of the intractable, unresolvable, repetitive arguing is dated, I'm doing battle back here, hypothetically, with my domineering father or something and acting it out in the marriage. Or one partner raised their voice slightly and it reminds the other partner of parents screaming and yelling Mm -hmm. at one another so he or she shuts down and has to leave the room. Right. So that awareness can be incredibly empowering. Sure. So first comes the awareness, like, oh, yeah, my dad was like that, and so it triggers. It triggers a big word that's thrown around now, but it, yeah. rightfully so. Why is something triggering to you? Well, it could be family of origin. So then once you've observed or realized you're conscious to the trigger, mm-hmm. then how do you break that? How do you heal? Like, sure, okay, my dad was a certain way, and this is why I'm the way I am. Like, you've figured that out. That's step one. A lot of people mm-hmm. could just get that far with therapy or by themselves then how do you heal that because that's years of exposure and it's hard to change so what would the next step be what do you what's some advice that you give to people well i think it depends on the specific presenting problem and the nature of the um the psychological problem or suffering that the client you know would be experiencing okay so it it would be hard to to respond definitively to that What I do know about child development is most of our core personality, our constitution, is pretty well established by age eight. Hmm. So that birth to eight are, are, you know, such important years Hmm. in terms of, of, you know, a person's, again, self-esteem and their sense of themselves, their their, uh, susceptibility to peer pressure, Hmm things like that. So what would be some things, I mean, I could probably answer for you because I do feel like you guys did a good job about this, but obviously a constant state of love, it doesn't mean there aren't moments that aren't perfect, but trying to have a constant loving relationship doesn't mean you don't mess up or raise your voice or have to apologize to your child or whatever, but you're human, but making sure they feel loved on a daily basis, presence, obviously being around and supportive, uh, yes. What are some other things you could tell to parents? Because we're all trying to do our best, right? It's hard yeah. work. Uh, we have our personal life while we're raising a, yeah. a human. So what are some things besides just love and presence that you could recommend? Sure. Well, modeling is, is uh, a valuable behavior. Modeling. I mean, a lot of parents yell and shame and criticize their teenagers, for example, when they get you know, ultimately frustrated 
and it's it, or the example I, I would think of is with spanking is mm -hmm. when siblings get into a physical mm -hmm. altercation and the parents say don't hit your brother and then they spank right spank, not interesting spank the yeah. child so I think the goal is to try to help kids again believe in themselves value themselves respect themselves and think for themselves mm. I, I want you to kind of shine and and you know create your own light in life and so again co complex question of what what are the factors and considerations i think a healthy couple in terms of the modeling is a demonstration of what intimacy could be mm -hmm. you know what love operationalizing love versus talking about love mm -hmm. actually enacting love with respect and kindness thoughtfulness and communication too i know we always we joke like maybe we over talked we over analyzed but overall it was a positive thing i think like and i want to do that with my daughter is mm -hmm. open communication because i think everyone hears that right even with relationships like you have to be able to communicate because if you stop communicating you're really doomed which is kind of true but um Having yeah, the ability when, to communicate with your own child, because I think a lot of people don't talk about things. Yeah, talk less, listen more. To the child? No, well. Or, well, and to your no, partner? No, well, with teenagers, they only hear, clinical research indicates they only hear the first two sentences that parents, uh, when parents, parents shift into a lecture mode mm -hmm. or a stern mode. I think the other thing about parenting, just in a quick, quick reference, is um, try, trying to help kids develop an internal locus of control uh, which translates to be I, I'm not going to take uh, a classmate's uh, iPhone because my dad is going to ground me for two years I'm not going to take my classmate's iPhone because it would hurt their feelings it would cost them a lot of money it would be inconvenient mm -hmm. it would be inconsiderate very inconsiderate sure. of them that's a good way that's a good point so. yeah yeah, I know as I start my journey in parenthood, like I really trying to be conscious of like what is my feeling and then like what, what are her feelings. And I think that's something that is harder said than done and it takes practice. And I would like to practice it even more in my marriage. Um, it could be in any, any relationship, friendship or whatever. But uh, again, that consciousness factor is so, so important in so many aspects, mm -hmm. but really in relationships, I think it can improve them. I'm not putting your fears and your insecurities on your child. And that's so hard to do. And I mean, it's going to happen here and there, but I think if there's some consciousness, at least it can help. Even if you're saying, oh, I'm feeling this way, but you know, you have a choice to do this or that. Like, I don't know. Do you, is that something that's... Well, as, as your father, I, I would say there were a few times in your life growing up that it was, it took um, Herculean self-discipline to not project my fears onto you and right. try to be logical and rational, assessing like when you were driving mm -hmm. initially and they didn't have the state law. And so you, you could drive with friends. Mm -hmm. And when you went away to Europe to school and there were some bombings and things going on. In, it's hard in to... That you want to hold someone you love so much close and and not and, let and them go out, but suffocate them right in the process. So yeah. I think that's you know that's that's ought to be challenging for us as parents. I, I think about it as as sort of 
as you well stated, not projecting, well, this is how my family did it. You know, a lot of, a lot of parents, particularly fathers, will say, well, I, you know, I was spanked, I turned out all right, so I'm gonna well, there's yeah. 1.4 million alternatives to spanking a child sure. in any and all circumstances. Sure. Spanking is scary, it's hurtful, it creates an intimidation mm-hmm. complex and, um, and a lack of uh, respect for the parent. Yeah, I know. I was actually recently reading, uh, if anyone has young children, I actually am following a really great uh, page called Big Little Feelings on Instagram. You should check it out. But they talk about a lot of the stuff about uh, validating the child's feelings uh, so that they feel comfortable with expression. I think that's so important. Um, and, you know, realizing age appropriate tantrums and all those things, you know, they're learning how to have how to deal with life uh and so spanking and things like that they actually have talked about statistics have showed that um uh, children that are spanked are more aggressive to their peers so that's again a whole other topic but uh since we brought it up what would be some other alternatives i don't know if you want to use the word discipline but like i mean you guys never spanked me like what are some other ways that you can uh deal with a situation i think that's the word it's discipline guidance, mentorship, um, versus punishment. Mm. So um, a one-minute timeout in the chair for a three-year-old who's terrorizing the family cat or something. (laughs) One-minute timeout could be uh, accented with, and I love it because some spirited kids will put their body half off the chair. (laughs) That irritates some parents to no end. I say, they're testing limits. Yeah. It's a part of their human development. Yep. If you want them to be a follower, but they stay in the chair. And what research indicates on this is the little coup de gras at the end would be, you did a good job of staying in the chair. Now you can go play again. One minute. Mm-hmm. One minute. So just it's to remove teaching, from the situation. It's calming. It's um, potentially lending to self-comforting some self-discipline, and then there's that little little praise at the end. They don't get a trip to Disney World for sitting in the chair. It's just one little af- affirming yeah. compliment. Sure. Thank you for sitting in the chair. Now you can go back outside and play. Yeah, I like that. Very good. Wow. Well, there's so many different parts. We've touched on just a few. Um, but, you know, before we close, um, yeah, what are some last takeaways that you've you know discovered in your career or that you could just uh, express to people that are struggling and you know there's so many areas of life that people are working to improve or that feel they're stuck in mm-hmm. um what are some i guess last words of wisdom and encouragement that you could give because you know there's always been problems and there's always people that have been struggling and suffering but uh Right now is an interesting time to be alive, and there's a lot to sort through with uh, media and, and social media and technology, and uh, just very fast. So what, what are some tips you could give for people to kind of center themselves and, and sort through what's going on, I guess? I, I didn't intentionally sidestep your earlier question about some of the tips. It, as I said, it, I think it's a complex question in relationship to uh, the nature of the, the presenting sure. challenge or difficulty. You know, I, I would ask people to think about 
what for them is a definition of love, of happiness, of intimacy, mm-hmm. and, and what they might be afraid of in terms of, of achieving you know, those emotional states. And this matter of even uh, reflecting on our childhood and family of origin, it, it is fascinating to me that, that two siblings from the same impoverished family in, in the depths of, of poverty and drug addiction and violence and crime, one sibling ends up a cardiologist at Tufts University and the other siblings in prison for selling drugs. Mm, so we're talking a little bit about possible genetics, but let's say those siblings were in the exact same house, exact sure. same family, one year apart. So I think about this Blue Zone study that the National Geographic sponsored some years ago where they went around the world and they identified five different uh, communities, uh, Okinawa, Pasadena, California, which was one, Sardinia, a, mm. a, a little uh, community in Russia, with octogenarians and cent- century-old people. And cross-sample, they were the, the same basic five factors. It was a positive sense of self, a good diet, exercise, a, a sense of purpose, mm. and friendships and relationships mm. with family and friends. Mm. Yeah. People that are uh, married ha- have uh, a much longer, li- happily married, I should say, yeah. have, have a longer life expectancy. Uh, women who lose a spouse or divorce uh, have a tendency to live quite a bit longer and mm. have less depression, less addiction, less physical problems than men who live alone. Mm. Yeah, those are good, good areas. Again, balance, right? <laughs> Finding joy in many areas of life. Yeah. So I, I didn't really answer your question about kind of advice for people. Um, seeking out a friend, you know, could, could be as valuable as talking to a therapist. Sharing thoughts and mm-hmm. feelings, putting voice to emotion, sure. I think can, can be a pathway to feeling somewhat better. It's not a singular Sure. It's a way to heal those to actually get it out there. And then, you know, hopefully whoever you're telling, there's some support on that other side too. Yes. Yeah. Or maybe they share something with you and there's always some affirmation there. If, if, you know, you don't feel as alone, sometimes a lot of people are struggling with similar things, you know, we're all trying to figure it out. Well, that's what I've learned from working with this multicultural uh, population here from around the world is that we're so much more alike than dissimilar. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Wow. Well, thank you. I mean, we only touched on a few little areas. There's so much to talk about, but maybe we'll have to do a part two. I would (laughs) Uh, like that. Yeah. Thank you. But thank you for being here, Dad, and sharing some of your wisdom. You're very welcome. Appreciate it. Helped a lot of people over the years and uh, thankful for all many people in the uh, you know the psychology world for for giving their dedicating their career to helping others it's really great to have people like you out there so if you're uh, struggling or thinking about looking for a counselor uh, highly recommend it and um, 
yeah, we'll have to we'll have to do a part two. So if you liked this video, feel free to thumbs up it. Let me know. It helps me know what content you like, what what's touched you. Feel free to leave comments. Um, uh, my Instagram at Real Lauren Live. Head over to my website website Lauren.live. You'll see all the different uh, platforms that you can find the podcast on. Again, YouTube. Here we've got the video going. Um, so I appreciate your time listening to us today and, uh, we'll catch you next time. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Thank you.